your subconscious mind is very drawn to that because it sees like, oh, if I attach to this person, it will create a, a dynamic of wholeness between the two of us. And so it seeks that out and is really drawn to that. And that's part of how attraction is born is that people express traits that we've repressed. That's like and, opposites attract, no? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> of area and I was really working with people on core wounds and like different belief patterns they carried I did a lot of hypnosis um, training as well so I was really engaged with the subconscious mind and the importance of the subconscious mind when it comes to change and transformation and really making it last and so what I had been doing prior to ever learning about attachment theory was working with people on their core wounds understanding their needs their expectations in relationships and with each other um, and then noticing their different emotional patterns and ways that they give and receive love. And so what was really interesting is when I came across attachment theory and, and you know, I've been taught it in school at a very like surface level years and years before, but when I came across it in a more formal way, um, what I found was that all of these core wounds, expectations, needs, all these different components actually lined up with specific attachment styles. Like specific attachment styles had all of these things. So like a lot of the work you see on the YouTube channel, for example, is, is um, actually what we've called integrated attachment theory, which is actually about all these other patterns combined with your regular attachment theory and then how they impact the subconscious mind. Okay, and, and so all of this is essentially starting from childhood um, and I say quote unquote trauma because I think what's important um, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong but not a lot of people see trauma as very obvious like they, they associate the word trauma with and I did an episode specifically on trauma but they associate trauma with a specific event or something that is very significant to them that they can almost remember but sometimes trauma is like a death by, by a thousand cuts and it's not, it's not as kind of obvious to people. Absolutely. And you raised some really important points. So there's my favorite quote about trauma and, and best descriptor of it um, is in the words of Dr. Gabor Mate. And he talks about how trauma is two things. It's things that happen to us that shouldn't have happened, which is like, you know, a, a big example would be physical or verbal abuse or things that didn't happen that should have happened. Like we all have a basic desire and need for love and connection and emotional nurturing in childhood. And if we don't get those things, that in and of itself is traumatic. So that's one way that trauma goes unseen. But then when we look at the dynamics of things that are like more complex trauma, it's actually the more repetitive, small versions of trauma, like just constantly being um, dismissed by a caregiver, constantly being put down by a caregiver or criticized. It's these things that actually tend to have the deepest impact on our self-esteem and self-worth. And a lot of these things, like trauma is just basically anything that you couldn't figure out how to work through at the time. And so you instead stored it at a subconscious level and you stored all the emotion around it. And then you reorganize yourself around trying to avoid that thing. So like, yeah. let's say for example, you had a caregiver who sat, who is constantly, maybe they think they're trying to prepare you for the world and they're constantly being harsh with you and critical of you and putting you down. And maybe they think from, you know, their intentions are like, well, I'm going to whip you into shape young so you can be prepared and succeed and take care of yourself in life. But for a child who needs emotional nurturing and who is really impacted by different behavioral stages of development, 
you might have that individual and how they show up is like, they just feel I'm not good enough. And then they reorganize themselves around that. And they're always afraid of being not good enough. They always tell themselves the story of how they're not good enough. They magnify their flaws and minimize their victories. And and all of that would be, that would all fall under the, the umbrella of trauma because it's something that they couldn't emotionally process and understand what the caregiver's intentions were. They couldn't release it, let go process it through. And so now it becomes a part of their personality and they develop all these complex coping mechanisms around. And that's in the subconscious mind more so than the conscious. So when you talk about those behavioral patterns and those kind of automatic automatic behavioral patterns, it's, it's kind of, I, I think it might be hard for people to establish their trauma from the beginning. Would that be common? Yeah, big time. Like a lot of people won't know that they've been through trauma again, because like you said, they think of trauma as like a big car accident or like a death Mm -hmm. or things like that. Um, But we all go through trauma. The process of classical conditioning is traumatic. Like literally we get emotional inferences when we're wired for attunement and closeness and we're completely helpless and dependent on our caregivers for survival. We get all of these emotional inferences that say, oh, you're not, you know, I'm going to withhold love if you don't meet these expectations or you're going to get punished for this and rewarded for that. And the messaging we get is like, I am only worthy of love when. And so naturally just the byproduct of the way we're socialized is, is traumatic in and of itself. And it makes us feel like, you know, love is conditional. I have to earn worth. I have to earn love. Like it's a very normal thing for a lot of people. But because there's not a lot of people talking about that and because it's normalized and it's so common, I think it just flies under the radar a lot. And then we're used to feeling that way. And then we become, through socialization, so externally focused on other people and, pe- and people pleasing or, or protecting ourselves from people or attack defend mode with people or competition or all of these structures that literally come from that same system of socialization, of socialization that we don't recognize that, Hey, we're feeling like we're in fight or flight or, Hey, we feel like we're in compulsive people pleasing mode or, Hey, we are totally disconnected from, from our own feelings and needs. We can't even recognize those things because we are so focused externally on trying to survive and play the game and avoid repeating those same circumstances that caused pain in the first place and felt traumatic. Yeah, totally. And so this so this trauma then is whatever trauma you might have experienced is, as you said at the beginning, it's your kind of buckets of different four, four different attachment styles. Um, can you give me a quick overview of those attachment styles? Is that too much of a heavy yeah. question? No, that's amazing. <laughs> so, so yeah, so what we found in, in studying people and the way experiences imprint the subconscious mind and sort of studying um, attachment theory and then combining it with these core wounds um, and unmet needs, we found that there are four major attachment styles. Well, we know this from traditional attachment theory and John Bowlby. And then we're going to sort of go through and talk about the specific patterns that exist within each of these people through our integrated attachment theory. So, so first we have three insecure attachment styles for listeners who aren't aware or familiar, and it's life-changing to know this stuff. It's so beneficial. So um, we have three insecure attachment styles. These are the anxious preoccupied, the fearful avoidant, sometimes referred to as disorganized or anxious avoidant attachment style. And then we have dismissive avoidant. 
And then we have one secure attachment style, and that's the securely attached individual. Now, the securely attached person is like what we're all trying to get to. The securely attached person is characterized by somebody who had enough emotional consistency, safety, and nurturing in childhood that the natural way they learn to attach to their caregivers is through feeling safe to express their emotions and feeling like when they did, their needs were met, feeling safe to express their needs, and in doing so, their needs were also met, okay? And also feeling like they could trust, they could rely, that dependency isn't scary or vulnerable. And also that, you know, if, if I'm a human being as, as a little child and I learn, hey, my feelings are worthy of being expressed and my needs are worthy of being met. And when I express feelings and needs, it's safe and those things get met and catered to. I naturally also feel more confident in myself. I feel like I am functional and I am right as a human being and there isn't anything wrong with me and trusting is okay. And my self-esteem is is intact as a, as a natural byproduct of that conditioning structure. So that's our securely attached person. And they go on usually to have an easier time building bonds and relationships and speaking up and voicing opinions and having boundaries. And then we have the individuals who come from attachment trauma. And these are um, the anxious preoccupied and, and they're sort of at one end of the scale. And or like the spectrum and anxious preoccupied individuals tend to have a lot of inconsistency in their parenting. So it can be, for example, that um, uh, one parent is really emotionally available and another parent is really not emotionally available. And so that inconsistency when this child is wired to need attunement can be like a little treacherous and confusing and scary and can trigger those feelings of abandonment and fears around them. And it can also be something like both parents are super emotionally available, but they're both working a lot. Or, you know, there's a life circumstance that takes one or both parents away for a period of time and a child is staying with a grandparent, things like this. So wherever there's like a really strong pattern of inconsistency combined with a lot of positive emotional associations to, to having connection, to having closeness, you feel that void of like, wow, closeness feels so good. It makes me feel safe. It, it's what I need, but it comes and goes. And so the natural imprinting of this is this repetitive force of feeling unsafe, fearing abandonment, fearing being alone, and not really knowing like if something's coming or going. And so you see the anxious preoccupied in their adult lives become the people we'll refer to as needy or clingy or coming on really strong or moving things along in a relationship really fast. And those can all be things that can destroy relationships and push people away, even though the person desires for closeness so much, but they're also usually really out of relationship to themselves because they're so focused on getting their needs met externally. Mm, yeah. And then, yeah. And I'm sure everybody knows like somebody who's anxious, preoccupied, right? And the other end of the attachment spectrum is dismissive avoidant, which basically had the exact opposite, not exact opposite, but very close to the exact opposite. Um, programming. And so basically they have parents or caregivers who are not emotionally available and consistently not emotionally available. So Mm -hmm. they learn, okay, well, I can't rely on these people for emotional attunement and nurturing. I'm just going to really focus on soothing myself, relying on myself. And in fact, being emotionally vulnerable is consistently reinforced negatively enough that I'm not going to bother. And so these individuals really try to keep people at arm's length. And sometimes dismissive avoidance can sort of fly under the radar because sometimes you'll have dismissive avoidance who have like really good parents in terms of like caretaking and cooking meals and and having a safe environment and not chaos in the home. But 
they'll also have experience, you know, they're emotionally unavailable. And so that basic need for attunement that all children have is sort of null and void for these individuals. And they grow up to be like, I don't want to open up to people. It feels bad or it always gets rejected or there's no point. And they have all these negative associations at the subconscious level to what it means to connect. Mm. And then you'll see these individuals, you know, fear commitment, fear settling down, um, pull away in relationship dynamics, just as there's, you know, a need for closeness, these sorts of patterns and things. And again, like everybody knows one of those people. And then our last individual is the fearful avoidance, which is sort of, you know, they experience both sides of the attachment spectrum. They experience their anxious side and the fear of abandonment and and fear of disconnecting and, and fear of being alone. But they also experience the avoidance side that like, oh my gosh, I don't want to commit. I'm afraid of, of being trapped, helpless, smothered, these sorts of things. And they're often oscillating back and forth. They're like moving from one side to the other. And, and this attachment style is usually characterized by some form of trauma. Well, all attachment styles that are here are, but more so like more severe trauma or a lot more repetitive trauma. And these can be things like having a a parent with a personality disorder, like narcissistic, borderline, histrionic, these sorts of things. It can also be um, having a parent who struggles with alcohol, um, drugs, substances, somebody who goes through depression. It can be a lot of emotional volatility in the home, fighting, chaos, a painful divorce. Um, And And basically the fearful avoidant at a very young age learns, I cannot trust my caregivers to be, you know, normal, to to have a pattern of cause and effect. I can't, you know, one day my caregiver's in a good mood, one day they're in a bad mood, one day they're sober, one day they're not sober at all. And, And there's such an unpredictability that the biggest wound of the fearful avoidant is trust. And they learn to adapt to this situation by becoming really hypervigilant, and reading between the lines and being super attuned to people's micro expressions and body language and tone of voice and noticing shifts in patterns. And these things can be superpowers in some ways, but they can also make relationships really hard and really challenging. And because the fearful avoidance have that, you know, inconsistency and the abandonment traumas, but they also have the, you know, not having an emotional available emotionally available caregiver that nurtures them, they usually fall into the space of nurturing their caregivers to a certain degree. Um, And and there can be a lot of enmeshment in that. Um, But because of all of this, usually what you'll see is fearful avoidance can really struggle feeling safe in relationships, feeling like relationships aren't really hard because they tend to feel that way often. And they have a lot of, a lot more core wounds. They've got all the core wounds of the anxious, the abandonment, fear of being alone, all those sorts of things. And all the core wounds and trauma points of the dismissive avoidant combined with their own of distrust. So yeah, those are the four attachment styles. <laughs> and th- there's there's so much more. And I encourage anybody um, who's listening now to just pa- if you haven't figured out your attachment style to just click out and just go on to those um, your uh, personal develop. Is it your website? You have a quiz for the to yeah. determine your attachment style. Yeah. So it's um personaldevelopmentschool.com and you'll see at the very top attachment style quiz and you can take a quiz and it comes with like a full page report and it comes with um video explanations more about your attachment style and and we are on a spectrum so we can have patterns of one and then a little bit of another but we usually just tend to lean a certain way like you know fearful avoidant leaning anxious or dismissive avoidant leaning fearful like we sort of have a, a place that we move towards you won't really see absolute like opposite sides of the attachment spectrum in one person so it's a great place to find out all that info yeah and then just 
so the secure attachment, because, you know, I, I don't really, I don't know if I've, I, I'm sure the secure attachment style is very rare. Does that mean that they suffered no trauma in, in, in relation to attachment? That's a great question. Were... So it actually, yeah, everybody for sure goes through different forms of trauma. But what the secure would be characterized as is that the positive associations they build in at a subconscious level to relationships vastly outweighs the negative. And so you can think of like, imagine you're in a relationship and you have a partner who can sometimes be moody or critical, but let's say, um, you know, 9.5 out of 10 times, they're really loving, really warm. You know, you're going to, that's going to not imprint you and impact you the same way if they're in a bad mood and make, you know, a comment here or there when they get moody as it would, if you have somebody who's emotionally unavailable they're usually not in a great mood and then they're extra moody and critical sometimes. One is going to have a vastly dramatic impact on you because you will already have these negative associations building. And then when those things happen, those negative critical moments have a much stronger impact. And so you can think of it that way. Like all of our decisions as human beings um, and all of the ways we feel about relationships or you know career, any area of our life has a lot to do with like the net positive versus negative associations we've built in relative to that thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Um, and so you talk a lot about activating these um, attachment styles within a relationship um, and how that can be mistaken for um, quote unquote passion or the way that it's supposed to be. Can you talk a little bit about how we can identify that an activated attachment style? Yeah. Do you mean our activating strategies or just like when our attachment styles are, you know, coming up and showing up in our relationships? Yeah. It's, does that make sense? If, if somebody's attachment style is kind of elevated in, in a relationship yeah. and then, you know, you think you, you might think, oh, this is very passionate. You know, we're, we're almost like fighting, but we're not fighting. And it's like this back and forth. <laughs> yes. And I know I think yeah, you definitely. mentioned this so, in your so this yeah yeah so so what I see um quite often is that people will confuse their degrees of excitement or connection in a relationship with their attachment style being activated and so you know what we're really looking for when we go through the stages of relationship and, and there's sort of six key stages of relationships that go from dating to honeymoon to power struggle to stability commitment and then bliss and what we're really seeking to get to the bliss stage of a relationship itself is for us as human beings to be able to really trust, respect, have many more positive associations built in towards that relationship than negative, um, and to be able to communicate vulnerably about our flaws and be able to share ourselves and work through our core wounds and come to know each other and and really see each other more fully through vulnerability, sharing, and deeper connection. And those are like the prerequisite ingredients to get to the bliss stage. And this is where relationships are really thriving and lasting and it still feels exciting and people still feel in love. But people rarely reach that point because they get confused with their insecure attachment styles. And so what can take place is let's say for example, that, um, you're an anxious preoccupied. Okay. So we'll say like Sally, the anxious preoccupied and Bob, the dismissive avoidant. And what often happens is there's three core factors that create attraction for people at the subconscious level. This is number one, people expressing traits that you've repressed. So a good example of this would be if somebody's like, you know, 
been really secure in their childhood in terms of like their confidence. And then their parents maybe shame them and say, oh, you're so arrogant. You're full of yourself. And they learn, oh, expressing confidence doesn't feel safe or good. So I'm going to repress that. I'm going to show up as more timid and meek and passive, and that will get me love. And then maybe you have that person go into their 20s or 30s or 40s, and they meet somebody who expresses a lot of confidence. Because the subconscious mind is always seeking wholeness and, and equilibration, if somebody expresses a trait that you repress, your subconscious mind is very drawn to that because it sees like, oh, if I attach to this person, it will create a, a dynamic of wholeness between the two of us. And so it seeks that out and is really drawn to that. And that's part of how attraction is born is that people express traits that we've repressed. That's like and, opposites attract, no? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and this is a part of it. And then there's two other major factors. Another factor is people meet needs that are really important to you. So for example, if emotional connection is really important to you, if somebody shows up and gives that to you, then like, Ooh, you really feel drawn towards that. And then number three is we also attract people, um, or feel attracted to people according to our subconscious comfort zone. And again, the subconscious mind is like, so, you know, it's so responsible for our behaviors way beyond what we understand. Like 95 to 97% of our feelings, decisions, uh, emotions around attraction, um, behaviors in relationships, emotional patterns, all these things are, are subconscious and only three to 5% is conscious. So the subconscious is like, we want familiarity and safety. Even if your conscious mind is like, let's say you had a really hard childhood, your subconscious mind might be like, well, that was familiar and we survived. So we're attracted to people who treat us in, in similar ways that our parents did. Yeah. And so from these like key factors, what will take place often is that we'll have attachment styles that are attracted to each other. And usually a big part of that attraction is based on some kind of wounding we had from childhood and people who treat us in a way that, that, you know, we really held on to. So often what you'll see, for example, is that an anxious, preoccupied individual who is totally out of relationship to themselves and often dismissing themselves feels really attracted to Bob who is dismissive because he represents a subconscious comfort zone that exists within that person in, in the relationship they have to themselves. So if Sally is dismissing her feelings, her needs, her boundaries, and then she meets Bob, who's actively really worried about his feelings and needs and boundaries and, and had to self-soothe and protect himself growing up. So his focus is on himself. Her subconscious mind is like, Ooh, not only does he express traits that I've really repressed, but he also represents a subconscious comfort zone that's familiar. And so often attachment styles attract to one another and feel loads of attraction to each other based on pain, based on wounding. And then we get really excited around these things. And usually it's actually our subconscious mind seeking out, you know, healing and, and equilibration and, and wholeness. But when we're not aware of that, we can get really attracted to people who um, sometimes aren't the best for us or sometimes keep putting us through the ringer of painful patterns. And we don't recognize that this is happening until we have access to, you know, this sort of information. So yeah. that's when our attachment style can be activated, like you were mentioning. Yeah. And so that kind of leads me into the, into the second question is, um, how can we break this subconscious cycle? And this might be a more complex question that's, you know, being able to answer on this podcast, but how can we become, I know obviously becoming aware of attachment style is one way to kind of, you know, be on the journey to identifying various issues and, um, things that your subconscious is striving for, but is there anything that we can do to break the cycle, whether, yeah, you know, whatever, um, attachment style that you have? Absolutely. So I always say to people like you aren't born with an attachment style. It, it gets 
programmed into you. Yes. At a very early age, we start developing our first attachment style, but, um, and it's generally the ages of zero to two, our attachment style can be apparent, but it can shift based on our experiences that are repetitive over time. So the subconscious mind gets programmed through repetition plus emotion. So if you have an attachment style programmed into you, you can just as easily deprogram that attachment style or reprogram it into something more secure. But it requires a few key, really important ingredients in my experience. And so these things are, number one, we have to work on the core wounds. So if we have this fear of abandonment or fear of betrayal or fear of distrust, we have to work on reprogramming those things within us. And a lot of this requires two parts. Number one, usually for that thing to still exist all this time later, if we develop these, these core wounds at like, let's say four years old or five years old or, or a year and a half, what often takes place is that we've ended up carrying out those core wounds in relationship to ourselves on autopilot without realizing it. Because again, the subconscious mind seeks familiarity. So we can have a dynamic where we keep betraying ourselves without realizing, maybe not showing up for our boundaries, not speaking up for our needs, dismissing our feelings, people pleasing people at our own expense. And so we have to find where those core wounds are, what they are for each of us. And then we have to be able to stop reenacting those core wounds in relationship to self. You know, some people have really strong core wounds around, um, you know, criticism and feeling like something's wrong with me is a really big one for the dismissive avoidant. And usually they are in an, an ongoing repetitive cycle of shaming and criticizing themselves in their internal dialogue. And so we have to find those patterns and break those patterns. Um, and we also do that by questioning those stories. You know, sometimes you don't get a job interview. You don't get a job at a job interview. And we go, Oh, it's because I'm not good enough. And we shame ourselves or criticize ourselves. And it's like, can you really know that you're not good enough? Or could it be another, you know, hundred of different potential factors? Like, yeah, right. Like there's so much in there, but we usually personalize and project those, those same old stories and that cycle needs to end. And then another really important component is being able to know our needs in real time. Like, what do I need as a human being and how can I bring that to the table? And, and it's only through doing that, that we really open ourselves up to receive love effectively because a lot of individuals, you know, that are insecurely attached learned at some point, Oh, my na- my needs aren't safe to express. Or if I do express needs, they get shamed or they get ignored or rejected. And so I don't bother, but until we do that, we're not giving ourselves a chance to feel truly seen for who we are and to truly receive what we desire in a, in a relationship dynamic. And so that's another really important part. And when we show up for our needs in doing that, we also allow ourselves to, we we make ourselves worthy. We say, Hey, I'm worthy of taking up space. I'm allowed to take up space. And then hand in hand with that goes being able to communicate our boundaries and allow ourselves to like have a sense of self and self identity that says I end here and you begin here, or this is okay with me. And that is not okay with me. And so these are three really important components. Also learning to regulate our emotions is, is the fourth very important component. And that happens largely through challenging some of these internal dialogue stories we have at our core wound level and expressing our needs. Because the only two ways we actually experience pain or suffering is pain is the result of unmet needs and suffering is the story we tell around that. So if I don't have love and connection and, and I'll feel pain towards that, like, Ooh, and that pain is there to get me to grow and, and search out 
about a love and connection and, and get my needs met and is there to help me evolve. But then if I tell a story around it and I say, oh, it's because I'm not good enough and I'm not interesting enough and I'm unworthy, you know, that storytelling is what creates suffering. So we're really here to like work on those four key components. And if we can become masterful at navigating and reprogramming those painful patterns when it comes to either our needs not being met, our core wounds, our boundaries, or poor emotional regulation, um, in doing that, we can reprogram our attachment styles completely. Mm, So it really starts with, I suppose, the relationship and that that dialogue with ourselves, which is a lot of work on, on, you know, from a personal perspective. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Very Everything really at the end of the day has to do with relationship to self and and um, and that's how you show up and that's how you navigate the relationships outside of you. And I think one of the, the tough parts and um, when we talk about trauma earlier, you know, when we get so programmed to focus externally and to fit in and to get approval and get love from caregivers and we carry that out into the world, just a natural byproduct of that is that we lose connection and relationship to self. And part of healing from all of that is about getting rooted back in ourselves again, understanding those things, building out a relationship to ourselves, finding out what we truly need and desire, and then being able to express and receive that. And also as a natural byproduct of all of that, give love to other people from a more, from a more whole centered space that isn't about trying to manipulate or control or not lose somebody, but actually about to fully respect somebody else as a human being the way that we have ourselves. Mm, Yeah. So you, you touched on boundaries a little bit there. That was actually one of my next questions was how can we set boundaries in a relationship and going back to something that you spoke about at the beginning was some of us don't even know what our needs are or how we're feeling or how even to kind of navigate that within ourselves. So how can we work on setting boundaries in a relationship? Yeah, absolutely. So it's such an important thing because it really gives us a sense of self. And and when we talk about healthy, thriving relationships, one of the first words that comes to mind for me is interdependence. And when we don't have boundaries, we enter into codependence. And when we have too strong of boundaries and we won't let anybody in or near us, we have unhealthy independence or, you know, you know, a lot of fear around vulnerability, like a lot of the dismissive avoidance can have. And what we're really seeking is both. We want a healthy point of, of reference where we can give love to ourselves, express our needs to ourselves and meet them ourselves in relationship to self. And we also want to be able to communicate our needs to others and feel comfortable and safe doing that. And then also be able to receive those needs from others and feel comfortable and worthy and deserving of that. And those are sort of the four points of healthy interdependence. And so when we don't have boundaries, we lose our sense of self and we get into a space where we start giving and not receiving, or we start not speaking up when something feels violated. And like, you don't have a better recipe for, for creating resentment than that. And so all of these components are so important. And so boundaries really are all about understanding what feels okay for you and what doesn't feel okay for you. And this is largely based on your feelings and needs as feedback. Now, there are different types of, of boundaries. We have boundaries that are physical. We have boundaries that are material. We have sexual boundaries. We have time boundaries. We have mental boundaries about our thoughts and opinions, and we have emotional boundaries. And there's a lot to say about boundaries here as a whole, but we can have different ways that boundaries become violated. So this can be that somebody, um, 
take something from you without asking. Okay. So it's like an incoming boundary violation. And it can also be a boundary violation from something somebody doesn't do. So an example could be, let's say you have a sibling who borrows your clothes and then they never give them back. Right. It's a, it's a material boundary violation. Yeah. Non-action. Right. So we have these different boundary violations and, and there, it's really valuable to go through and like really identify, okay, what are my boundaries in each of the seven areas of my life? And to start getting intentional about like, when do I feel that things are, are violated in my career, in my fin- financial life, in my physical, my mental, emotional, my spiritual and in all my relationships and to get clear and do the work ahead of time so we can start to develop what our boundaries are through that awareness. But a really simple tool listeners can use to start identifying their boundaries right now is just being able to notice when you feel bad and Mm -hmm. when you feel like a, a boundary is violated and to ask yourself a few simple questions just to go, okay, what about that made me feel bad? What did I need to happen instead? And how can I communicate that next time? Yeah. And that's going to help you just identify where these boundaries are violated and and what you need instead is your boundary. And then it's about upholding and communicating that so that you can set that space for yourself and enter into healthy interdependency. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really it's all like going on in my head that's really um significant. And I I the million dollar question is really about, you know, what does a healthy relationship look like? Um, you know, when, when two attachment styles come together and neither of them are secure, um, do you, would you say that it has a lot to do with boundaries um, for that interdependence? Absolutely. So uh, it has to do with a lot of things and, and we can sort of model it off of a secure person. So what you see in, in a relationship between two secure people are some some really unique attributes that we can sort of use as like a, a compass to, to follow after. So um, what you can, what you'll see when people become secure is number one, they absolutely feel safe reinforcing boundaries and stating boundaries. And you can think of that as like immunity towards resentment because when our boundaries are vi- violated, whether we're consciously aware of it or not, we feel a, a sense of resentment. And if we don't communicate about that, then we just, you know, become spiteful or vindictive or self-protective or stonewall, or we have all these coping mechanisms to protect us that are very unconscious instead of these conscious, intentional awareness pieces. Mm -hmm. So boundaries are huge and you'll see secure people naturally navigate and communicate boundaries without feeling insecure or unworthy to do so. We'll also see that secure individuals don't tell stories as much. They don't say, you know, if my partner doesn't call back, it means I'm unworthy or I'm unloved. It's, oh, something came up right? So, so they don't personalize things as much, which is another component. And the reason for that is that they didn't have as many traumas and as many painful imprints that resulted in core wounds. And so there's less to be activated from the subconscious mind upwards when something like that happens. And another key component you'll see is that they naturally communicate their needs very easily on a regular basis. So not just around their boundaries, but you know, Hey, I'd love to get breakfast tomorrow morning or, Hey, why don't we do this? And they feel safe doing that where you'll see insecure attachment styles often don't. And so these are some really key components and what you'll see between two secure people or between two people who work on their attachment styles, even if they start as insecure and become secure with each other over time as a result of doing so is that I always think of like, you know, that, that, excitement you feel on the roller coaster and it's like pleasure seeking excitement, like that infatuation and that draw and that intense feeling, which can sometimes be your attachment style being activated. And what I always say to people is like, yeah, that's like a pleasure seeking thing. And it comes with a high, 
but it also comes with a low. It's sort of like doing drugs. It's like you can get a high and then there's a downside to that for sure. And when we have securely attached relationships where people constantly are showing up, being vulnerable, sharing their feelings, sharing their insecurities, speaking about their needs, setting their boundaries, like, and really learning to truly see one another, it's sort of like over time that fulfillment really outweighs any pleasure seeking that could happen in the first place because that fulfillment can keep growing. So you might not have this like extreme high in the same, you know, to the same degree right away, but long-term that fulfillment really vastly outweighs and overpowers any pleasure seeking stuff in the, in the first place. And it doesn't have the same downsides as the roller coaster relationships. So that's what we're trying to get to. And that comes from doing that exact work. And, and I find that like, we have a lot of people who, think, oh, relationships are hard or, you know, monogamous relationships aren't for me or, you know, people get bored and we have all these things. And, and I am like very supportive of whatever relationship type anybody wants to be in. But I would ask people to make that decision from, from truth instead of from fear, from fear that Mm -hmm. somebody will get bored or somebody will cheat or somebody will leave or people won't stick around or vulnerability is not safe. And so if anybody feels that they have these barriers or stories that are showing up, in their programming about relationships themselves, I really urge people to do that work so that you can achieve a space that you can get into as a human being that eventually says, you know, I am worthy of love. Love isn't so hard. And you can really connect in that fulfillment type of relationship that results from becoming more secure. Yeah. And it, 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 going back to, um, the secure attachment style or, or quote unquote the, the healthy ideal relationship really mirrors the relationship between caregiver and and a child it's a, it's a very consistent it's very kind of calm like it has a lot of longevity and there's no kind of ups and downs in it so it's it kind of mirrors that exactly, exactly. yeah um, so that kind of brings me on to my last question. I wanted to highlight the fact that you have a book um, on attachment theory. What can people get from your attachment theory book? Yeah, so the, the book is basically an overview of the different attachment styles and it dives into like, you know, some key tools or, or programs from your attachment style. It's sort of like a, an attachment theory guide. And mm-hmm. um and the book is wonderful. I really recommend though, if anybody is like really trying to do a deep dive into reprogramming their attachment style and like really changing things, do the courses inside of the personal development school. They are like super results oriented. It's just in a book, you have like the pages and, and it'll be very like informational and learning and you'll have some yeah. transformational tools, but the courses have like workbooks and exercises and we do four live weekly webinars for people to get their questions answered live. And it really helps to deeply reprogram and have that repetition and community. And we've seen, um, we, we did a poll the other day. We've been um, open online for about, I was doing this stuff in, in person for a long time, but we've been open online for about eight or nine months. And 93% of people um, said that they feel that they have become secure as a result of doing the work within the first three months of being in the school. So it's like really transformational. And and I'm um, sorry, not to like <laughs> divert from the book, but it, it that's the space that you want to learn things. And we talk about in there like what it means to set boundaries, how to identify boundaries, transforming compulsive people pleasing, discovering your personal needs in all areas and in relationships, how to communicate, how to move through conflict. We have communication scripts. We have specific attachment style reprogramming courses, emotional regulation courses, um, and subconscious reprogramming courses as a whole, understanding like the dynamics of your subconscious mind. So that 
you're it's looking deep, at the place. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So the book is a great guide to kind of carry with you and to understand um, the attachment theory and attachment styles. But I, yeah, to your point, Absolutely. if you want to get a deeper dive, it's um, exactly. it's all available online to anybody across the world at this point now because online gives us that um that gift as well absolutely and the book is like a really great intro it's like the basics of attachment theory for people who are like just getting to know it that sort of thing um but the deep dive is definitely in the courses amazing well thank you so much and i'll put all your links to uh, your social channels and the personal development school in the uh, description of the podcast but really appreciate it coming on it's just it's been a lisa life and and finding you has been a lisa life and i hope i encourage people also to take a deeper dive into your content and, and the website as well so thank you thank you so much thank you for having me and for bringing this out here and and for sharing yourself and all these amazing questions i so appreciate being here